You're listening to the sermon cast of First Presbyterian Church Spartanburg. To watch the full video of this worship service and to learn more about the ministries of our church, visit us online at fpcspartanburg.org. We hope you enjoy the message. As Alan mentioned, we are indeed um, looking at the prophet Nathan today. And we will encounter Nathan in second chapter of, of Samuel, uh, seventh chapter of Second Samuel, uh, starting at the first verse. Listen for God's word to you. Now when the king, that's David, was settled in his house, the Lord had given him rest from all his enemies around him. The king said to the prophet Nathan, see now I am living in a house of cedar, but the ark of God stays in a tent. Nathan said to the king, go, do all that you have in mind, for the Lord is with you. But that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan. Go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, are you the one to build me a house to live in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day, but I have been moving about in a tent and a tabernacle. Wherever I have moved about among all the people of Israel, did I ever speak a word with any of the tribal leaders of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep to be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went. And I have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may live in their own place and be disturbed no more. And evildoers shall afflict them no more as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come forth from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be a father to him, and he shall be a son to me. When he commits iniquity, I will punish him with a rod such as mortals use, with blows inflicted by human beings. But I will not take my steadfast love from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. Your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words and with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Holy and gracious God, we give you thanks for the words of your prophets that call to us across the ages with words of comfort and of challenge, 
words of calling out of grace. So open our ears to your words this morning. We may know your love and have hope. In Christ's name, amen. Well, our series uh, continues on telling these stories from the Bible. Um, So far in our sermon series, we've looked at Joseph, the dreamer and the interpreter of dreams. We've looked at the brave Hebrew midwives, Shifra and Puah, whose quiet act of defiance saved so many from death, including Moses. Today, we move forward several generations past the Exodus, past the time of the judges, past the first king of the nation of Israel, Saul, who was mentioned in our reading, and well into the reign of the second king of Israel, King David, as we look at the prophet Nathan. Now, Nathan is probably best known for his bold confrontation of King David after his affair with Bathsheba and his subsequent killing of her husband Uriah in order to cover it up. That confrontation is what's depicted in the painting on the front of the bulletin, and that confrontation gave rise to Psalm 51, which was our prayer of confession. In that story, there is that striking scene where Nathan tells David a parable about a rich man who has many flocks, but steals and kills a poor man's only lamb to feed his dinner guests. There's this poignant moment when David is incensed at this rich man and says that he should be put to death. Then Nathan turns and points at David and says, you are that man. Yes, David, the man after God's own heart, also had a dark side. And Nathan, the prophet, was there throughout to hold him accountable and pull him back to God's ways. David paid dearly for his misdeeds and knew loss and turmoil because of it. But God never left David, even amid his waywardness and woe. But today we're actually looking at an earlier moment in Nathan's ministry as David's royal prophet in his court. But before we get there, a word about prophets in the Bible. With apologies to Nostradamus, the Left Behind series, and the 700 Club, the biblical prophets were not really fortune tellers. At least that's not their primary role. Yes, they spoke about the future, but their messages were less about some supernatural vision of the distant future and more about telling God's message to God's people right here and now, right where they were. Many years after Nathan, it didn't take a fortune teller to see that the Assyrian and the Babylonian armies were on the march and that Israel and Judah would not withstand their might. But it took a prophet a prophet to tell them what God was doing in the midst of all that. As our quote from Frederick Beekner on the back of our bulletin puts it, prophets are mouthpieces for God. 
They speak God's word to God's people at an important moment of history to tell God's people and to help them understand theologically what's going on and very often to call God's people back to faithfulness. The more I read biblical prophecy, the more I wonder whether their insights into what might happen in the distant future have less to do with some clear vision of the future and more to do with an intimate knowledge of the character of God in whose hands the future rests. Maybe when Isaiah speaks of the mountain of God to which all people in the world will stream and where you know, all those animals live together in, in harmony, maybe it's less because he has this clear vision of this mountain and more because Isaiah knows the God who walks in the Garden of Eden who rescues people from slavery in Egypt, who anoints David, the youngest and smallest son of Jesse, fresh in from shepherding in the field to be the king of Israel, a God who is engaged in the world that God created. Maybe Isaiah can describe that mountain because he knows what God is like and knows that a God like that is going to bring us all together in one place, in peace. So Nathan speaks for God. Thus says the Lord. Nathan doesn't make predictions about the future. No, Nathan speaks God's commandment and also God's word of promise and of hope. The temple was built by David's son, Solomon, not because Nathan predicted it would be. The temple was built by Solomon because God commanded it to be that way, and David obeyed God's command. David made arrangements for the temple, gathered materials, even gave his son Solomon clear instructions on how to build it, but he left it for the next generation, just as God had said to do. And then there is this promise, this covenant that God makes with David and his descendants that someone from David's line would always be on the throne. Now, had Nathan actually seen the future, he would have known that the Assyrians and then the Babylonians and then the Greeks and then the Romans would conquer and oppress God's people. He would have seen the destruction of the temple and the palace. He would have seen the king, a descendant of David, blinded and taken into exile. He would have known that the throne of of God's people would sit vacant and even cease to exist for centuries. If he had seen all of that, would he have still spoken these words of God and God's promise to David? Would he have still spoken of a dynasty that would last forever? But the historians who compiled this portion of the Bible saw fit to keep Nathan's words of promise just as we have them here. There God's promise stands right here in 2 Samuel chapter 7, promising not so much the quality of David or his descendants, because it's a real mixed bag after that, but the enduring faithfulness of God. 
What's wonderful and challenging about this covenant that God make, makes with David through the prophet Nathan is this unconditional lack of limits. It speaks of forever, without any qualifications or conditions, no ifs, ands, or buts. And this came to be a problem when God's people were taken into exile. They wondered, had God failed? Had God been defeated? Had God gone back on God's promise? This history that we find in 1st and 2nd Samuel, 1st and 2nd Kings, and 1st and 2nd Chronicles, all that was compiled after the Hebrew people had gone into exile, likely to preserve that history and that heritage, and also to interpret that history through the theological lens of their day. But still, in the face of all odds, with Jerusalem in ruins, those historians left that promise from 2 Samuel 7. They left it in the text sort of as an enigma. How would they make sense of that promise in light of the fall of the monarchy and the exile of God's people? You know, in many ways, the later prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, and the like, who actually, they actually butted up against these words of the prophet Nathan in the days before the exile, as they warned God's people that because of their waywardness, their unfaithfulness, that promise that Nathan had made would not be enough to save them from the onslaught of the coming Assyrian and then Babylonian armies. Can you imagine what it must have been like to hold on to that promise in the midst of exile when Jerusalem was sacked and the temple was looted and destroyed? They could have just let that promise go. They could have said that Nathan was wrong. Maybe that wasn't a word from the Lord because it sure looked like the line of David had been cut off and there was no throne in Jerusalem anymore. They could have said that this just doesn't work anymore. They were facing a crisis of faith and how they resolved that crisis of faith would shape the theology of Jewish and Christian believers for centuries to come, even to today. We here in 21st century America don't face the kind of political conquest and exile that the people of, of the ancient Hebrews experienced. But there is still a crisis of faith for many in our culture and our world. The word deconstruction is all around us these days as people reconsider the faith that has been passed on to them and the church that some of them have held so dear in the past. Some of those people have been harmed by the church. There's LGBTQIA plus folks who have been told by some parts of the church that who they are is sinful. There are children who have been abused by leaders of the church only to experience cover-up and denial. Certainly that couldn't happen here, people think, with her or with him. 
And it's all too common for victims of spousal abuse to be shunned and even kicked out of the church for standing up for themselves and leaving their abusive spouse. I used to think that that toxic humanity, or toxic Christianity was limited to folks like Westboro Baptist Church or the Duggar family. And if you haven't seen that Netflix documentary on the Duggars, it's a bit unnerving how strange and unusual and disturbing that form of Christianity may be, but also how familiar and very common that toxic Christianity can be. I'm finding that that kind of toxic Christianity is much more pervasive than we would like to think. A few months ago, I had coffee with a therapist who runs a practice in which there is another therapist who specializes in religious trauma. I was so disturbed by that conversation that I couldn't sleep the night after that. Not only are there people for whom their religious trauma is so serious that they seek out a specialist in that field, but there are enough of them in a town as small as Asheville, North Carolina, to keep a specialist dealing in religious trauma in business. Around that same time, I met with someone else who told me that she is a follower of Jesus, but she does not call herself a Christian because, in her words, the term Christian had become weaponized. And it's not just people who've been traumatized by the church who are re-examining and deconstructing their faith. There are those that look at disasters, both natural and human-inflicted, and wonder how a loving God could let that happen. There are those who experience more personal tragedies. And there are allies and friends of those people who no longer find the old pat answers to be satisfying. I might put myself in that last camp as I find myself sometimes letting go of the absolute theological consistency that I used to hold in younger days, all everything logically working together and embracing a messier theology, vaguely a more Hebraic theology that doesn't all fit together perfectly, but that still rings true to lived experience. I guess that's my own kind of deconstruction and reconstruction as I make my way through midlife. And don't get me wrong, I think that kind of thoughtful and considered faith is a very good thing. But it can also be dangerous. So many who go down that path of deconstruction end up with nothing left. They dismantle their faith, even their relationship with God, even their belief in God, and they simply walk away. Or they hold on to their belief in God, but it no longer really matters in their lives. It would have been so very easy for the ancient Hebrews to completely deconstruct their faith when they were in exile. 
But instead, instead they went the opposite direction. Here in this passage as we received it, and in the way that it will be understood by those in the exile later on, we see another path besides walking away. We see the path of hope. You see our story from 2 Samuel, our story of this command and promise that God gave the prophet Nathan to give to David is bigger than the temple, though the temple was huge. And it's bigger than the political realities of who was king among God's people because that became a problem during the exile. The Hebrew people in exile looked at that promise that Nathan conveyed to David and instead of seeing failure, which would have been so easy to see, they choose to find hope. They clung to that promise ever more strongly. And when the old answers no longer worked, they reinterpreted it in light of the hope of a messianic king from the line of David who would come and restore this promised dynasty of King David. Many years after Nathan, Isaiah spoke of that hope. He spoke of it as a shoot that would come from the stump of Jesse. New growth from this tree of David's father, Jesse, that is seen to be cut off completely. You know, there's a reason why the genealogies of Jesus and the Gospels all reach back at least to David. There's a reason why Jesus was born in Bethlehem the city of David. There's a reason why that blind man cried out to Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Hope. Hope is a powerful thing, especially when you are in exile, especially when your future is uncertain. There was a time not so long ago that I thought I knew exactly what my future would look like. I had a clear picture of it in my mind, very clear and concrete dreams and expectations. But those expectations were shattered when my marriage ended. In many ways, I mourned that loss of an expected future more than I mourned anything. But through conversations with a lot of you, through letters and emails from a lot of you, and also through conversations with a good therapist, I found hope. Hope for a future that is less clearly defined in my head, less more, um, uh, less clear and easy to see, but still filled with joy and goodness. Hope changed things for me. Hope quite literally change my life. 
Hope is a powerful thing. Hope can bring an addict to sobriety. Hope can give us strength to face terrifying illnesses. Hope can give us peace amid life's turmoils. Hope can anchor us to faith even when the faith we have no longer fits and needs to be changed a little. Hope can lead us to change the world for the better. Hope in the promises of God can get us through even when we don't know what the future holds. So when I look to the prophet Nathan, when I look to this message that he gave to to David from God, and when I look at the mess that followed afterwards, I choose with those ancient Hebrews to see hope. That the God who did not forsake King David, even amid his royal mess-ups, will not forsake us either. We can have that hope, not because some prophet has painted a perfect picture, a vision of exactly what that future will look like, but because the prophets have shown us a God who is faithful and good and who holds our future, whatever it may be, in God's loving and powerful hands. And that, my friends, gives me great hope. Let us pray. Gracious and holy God, we give you thanks for the prophets who speak your word to us in powerful ways, reminding us of your faithfulness, reminding us of your love, reminding us that you are always with us. In Christ's name, amen.